Hi there and good day. Welcome to North Bay's Heritage Diary. Listen up and we shall weave for you tales of days and times gone by which can inform today and show the way to tomorrow. This Municipal Heritage Committee podcast looks at our town, our people, and our stories. This time we open our diary of voices from the past for a conversation with now-retired Dr. Francoise Noel, recorded in 2014 when she taught history at Nebuzing University. This was part of the Kojiko Cable series, Life Is. Noel, from Manitoba, taught in several places before being recruited by Bob Surtees for Nipissing. She taught at Nipissing for around three decades before retiring. Among the topics discussed are her reprinting of Anson Gard's 1909 book, Gateway to Silverland, her social history family community life in Northeastern Ontario, the interwar years, published in 2009 and dedicated to Surtees. Nepising, Historic Waterway Wilderness Playground, published in 2015. Please excuse any dated references. We start off discussing her PhD thesis. And you got an MA and a, and a PhD, and you mentioned the doc. What was your dissertation about? Uh, my dissertation was actually on a settlement in the upper Richelieu Valley, so south of Montreal, uh, in an area that had been owned by an English seigneur, uh, Gabriel Christie. And I was looking at deeds of concession. So, the, so the, the idea was partly to look at how an English seigneur affected this whole you know, French way of holding land. Uh, and it was sort of commercialized to some extent with more monopolies and, and things like that. So it was sort of a 19th century uh, settlement. What, was it different from other parts of Quebec? Probably primarily in, in the survey. Uh, because the everybody's familiar with the long lots along yeah, the seigneurial, yes, along you know, the, along the river and things lots, like that. Yeah. But in his seigneuries, uh, Christie surveyed um, ahead of time. Unlike the French, who would simply, you need a new lot, you put another stake in the ground 30 feet over, and that's the next farm. Okay. Uh, he actually surveyed in much the, as the British did with uh, pre-planned pieces of property. And um, they were 28 arpon, but that's actually, uh, it actually comes out to make more sense in miles than right. in arpon. Okay. And uh, it was more rectangular, a little bit less long lots. There was still a tendency towards long lots, but it was a little bit more rectangular. And uh, so it was more a British way of, of looking at land. When, when did he do all this? Uh, just after the, um, uh, the conquest. Oh, Between right. then and... Uh, the uh, eight, well, his family basically owned those seigneuries right through his descendants right through until the uh, commutation of, of seigneurial tenure in eighteen fifty four. He didn't own. He only got the land after Wolf. Yes. All right. So he was one of the generals who basically came in with the uh, as he was an army general. Well, he made to, he made it to general after the war, I think. Uh, oh, yeah, so, he's military. Oh. so he was a military officer, and there were many military officers who bought seigneuries because they were going, they were, they were uh, what would you call it, a basement sale. You know, yeah, um, yeah. they were being sold off at, at really cheap rates because the French officers who owned them, uh, or the French elite, were thinking of going back to France, and they were worried that the British would take away the rights. Okay, so he bought it. They didn't just waltz in and say, no, get no. off the land and no, we're no. taking it. Oh. They bought them, but they bought them at bargain prices. Bargain. Okay, all right. Uh, is, is that still a key story for you to tell, just as much as the work you're doing today? Is that uh, of more interest to you or just as much? No, as I've moved on, but I, because I did 
the deeds of concession in an area that would be about the size of a small county and I had the list of names of everyone who was given a grant in that time period and I refer to that as an appendix in my book that I wrote from the thesis. I, up until last year, I think, or maybe the year before, I still occasionally get emails. And, the, uh, and I've had to put the list of names up on a website. And so the genealogists still go looking. Oh, okay. And so people who are interested in the local history of that area are still looking at the book. Has someone else, or have other historians done other areas of Quebec the same way? Uh, there's been less work done on the seigneurial system in the British period, but there are a few. So two or three other studies that would include the British period. Okay, what brought you to, well, you, NIP, NIP U, I guess, eh? brought you here? Yes. Did NIP U bring you to Ontario, or had you? Um, I had finished my PhD, and I spent f uh, five years on basically one-year contracts. Okay. Uh, but I had, uh, when I was still at McGill finishing, I had uh, been desperate enough to come and teach in French one summer at Nipissing, which uh, in 1983, uh, because I was totally out of money. And um, uh, Bob Surtees was teaching a okay. spring session that year, yes. so he met me. And uh, he kind of, I thought jokingly, said, well, you know, when we ever get a job in the history department, you know, I think we should hire you. And of course, several years later, you know, I, I just assumed that that was never going to happen, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I was in Newfoundland, okay. and uh, I was on a tenure stream job, which normally you don't give up, but it wasn't working out as well as I'd liked. I didn't really, it's one of the few places I've lived where I really didn't enjoy it all that much. And um, so I got a phone call from Bob saying, you didn't apply for our job. And I said, I didn't see a job in Canadian. He said, well, it's not advertised as a Canadian, but apply anyway. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> so I actually left a tenure-track job in Newfoundland to come to Nipissing for a two-year contract. Oh, boy. Was that the biggest gamble you've taken in your life, would you say? It certainly was one that most people wouldn't do. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty big gamble. Because they could have just, after two years, said, okay, it's not working yes, out. Yes, There's no absolutely. fun. There's no funds. There's no whatever, and I'd already been on the road for five years, and then one year, you know, yeah, so if then I've done two years there, I would have been starting to reach that point. There's a kind of a point at which mm -hmm. faculty start having trouble getting hired, mm -hmm. because they've been unattached for a bit too long. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned one-year contracts. What's that like for, a, for a, an academic? Well, it's difficult, because you're always getting readjusted. Uh, there were years I didn't even unpack everything I owned. Uh, so you don't quite have time to make yourself a, a home and to meet people and make friends. And yes, you have colleagues, you know, who are, are good to you, so to speak. You know, you get invited to dinner mm -hmm, and things mm -hmm. like that. But it wasn't until I'd been in North Bay for several years that I realized that in the one year, you don't really have time to get to know people. Yeah. It takes longer than that to make true friends and to really settle in. So you were rootless pretty well then? Well, the, the academic community is national. So, you know, you go to the annual conference, you see the same people, you have some ties to that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it's not, you know, you're not completely at loose ends, but yes, it's a little bit disruptive. And <laughs> do you, do, did you at that time uh, teach in French as well as English? No. 
that was the only time I ever taught in French was... Could you teach in French today? I interviewed at the University of Ottawa and uh, from the results I got, I sort of think no. Because I did interview for a, f a job that was where it would have required French teaching in, okay. in Ottawa. Um, my French probably would improve to the point where I could if I was in the job, but it was never quite at that level to get the job. Is, did you feel a loss? I mean, you grew up in, I'm assuming, in, 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 in your, the Alberta community. Was it a bilingual community or was it more francophone community? It was very much bilingual. I was bilingual by the time I was six. Okay. Do you feel any loss that, that you're not fluent? Well, I, I recognize now that if we had had a different school system that allowed us to learn our French better, mm -hmm. that I would be fluently bilingual the way some of the people I interviewed were. Mm -hmm. uh, in North Bay, the people who went through from North Bay to, say, Halebury for, for college, or from North Bay to Sudbury, you know, in the French Catholic community, those people are totally fluently bilingual, and I think that would be a real plus, yeah. and I'm not. You've started researching this particular area now, too. Yes. And one thing that impressed uh, uh, um, my wife Pam was a curator at the North Bay Area Museum, and she had a copy of the original, the original Anson Guard book. What, what possessed you to take an, basically an unknown book, because people didn't know about it. They knew the, about the Kennedy book, and they knew the, the uh, chap from Kirkland had done some stuff so on and so forth. But nobody knew about this gateway to Silverland. And you, you took it and you, you republished it. Well, when I first started doing research on North Bay, I found that almost all of the information came from the 1925 Old Home Week Old souvenir Home Week. book. Wasn't that a marvelous book? It's marvelous. And I believe, and, the, and from Kennedy, and there didn't seem to be a lot of other information. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did have a copy of the original book in the library, the um, Anson Guard, right. <coughs> at the Nipsing Library, but it was falling apart. And, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't in good shape. And as you say, it wasn't circulating and well-known or anything like that. And yet, when I read it, I realized that it had more first-hand accounts and mm -hmm. stories in it than anywhere else. And the other big plus about Anson Gard is that when he came, he had access to both newspapers that have now all disappeared. Mm -hmm. So he used the Times, and I can't remember the name of the other one, but there were two newspapers mm -hmm. in town at the time. And he went to those records as well as talking to people. Now, he didn't talk to everyone. He talked to the English. He didn't really talk to any of the other communities. And the uh, biographical section, oh, yeah. I think, is excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it gives us a bit of an idea of what Norbay was like at that time that just doesn't exist anywhere else. It's a valuable historical document, but he wrote it as almost a, a Chamber of Commerce puff piece, wasn't it? That or a travel piece uh, trying okay, to encourage travel, people right. to come. Okay. Because he did some books in the Ottawa Valley as well. Yeah, and were you, were you happy with the way it came out? No. Uh, there's one thing that I wasn't happy with, and that was that I was not aware about screening for the pictures. Yeah, pictures were... They, they were not screened, and so they didn't come out right. And yeah. in my proofs, they looked fine. And when they went through the press, the, the screening kind of deteriorated the pictures. But other than that, I was happy with the way it came uh, out. It's a great, great historical <laughs> document. Oh, boy. Um, now... I, your areas of interest are in social history? Yes, absolutely. I've, that's basically what I've always done is social history. 
Do you have any interest in the big names? Uh, I mean, uh, big names we're talking around here, if you're doing a history of North Bay involving the mayors and involving people like Jack Garland and, and uh, all those people. Like, like in the Gateway to Silverland, the bio with the pictures, these were all those are the big names. English wheeler dealers. Yes, um, yes, I am. In, I mean, I'm not disinterested in them, but I see them as as being that elite, mm-hmm. and I think it's also always interesting to see them in relationship to what else is going on. So it depends. I mean, so I'm not saying that I'm not interested, but it just happens that the kind of history I've done has been more. Uh, towards family and community, so it's it's a different approach. You've got a book, Family and Community Life in Northeastern Ontario, the interwar years, between the wars, that is between 1918 and 1939, right? Yes. Okay, uh, 20, 21 years, roughly. Yes. Um, give me three salient things that stood out in that area of, and this is family life, in Northeastern Ontario, we're talking Franco, we're talking Anglo, we're talking Italian. On the Sudbury area, we'd, we'd be talking Ukrainian, Polish, and the Sault Ste. Marie would be in. Yes, I didn't do the whole region. I, I, I did call it Northeastern in the title, but it's really the area between Mattawa and North Bay. Okay. So it's much um, more s- specialized in this area, right, okay. but I didn't want to use North Bay in the title either because it wasn't just about North Bay. Okay. So we'd have uh, we'd have English, French, and and uh, Italian, basically, and Greek, and, and Greek. Jewish, okay, and Chinese. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. And um, I did not get uh, any information on the Ukrainian community, but a bit, there was a small one, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the Aboriginal community is around, but yes. it wasn't actually present so much in a visible way in the area that I actually geographically ended up doing. And so I don't really have a lot of information on the Aboriginal community. What again? Three salient things that stuck in, stuck in your mind from t- and you did most of your research in talking to people, did you not? Or was was it? Just it was as a combination. Much a, okay. It was uh, about fifty oral history interviews. Okay. And um, all of nineteen twenty five and all of nineteen thirty five from the Nugget. Oh. Which was put on a database, which I could then pull information out in a consistent fashion. And that made a big difference for the community part. So you didn't you you didn't have to go in those. The the students did. I had research. <laughs> this was a funded project. Oh, okay. And so there was money for research assistance, and so that's where the money went. It went to uh, dealing with the oral history interviews after they were done. I did them myself, but then you have to process them. Okay. And the the money also went to the Nugget database. Okay, how did you get that database from, uh, uh, I mean, normally you have to view stuff from the, from the Nugget and those. Lots and lots of hours. Two, two different students, one did 1935, one did 1925. The 35 took all summer, and she worked uh, pretty much six-hour days, and she cranked microfilm, and every time she came to it, like all of 1935, every article on North Bay, she put in the title, the proper a bibliographical reference, like all the information, so you could find it again. Uh, uh, keywords, quick summary of the article, and anything that she thought, if it was an important article, some quotes from the paper. And um, so basically enough information that I could use it, possibly even use the quote without going back to the original article, ah. but with some indication 
if it was a very, very long article of how important it was so that I would know whether or not it was worth going to. And for clubs, for example, they would all be just little announcements. The Canadian Club, I've, one of the things that comes up in 1935 is the Canadian Club had Nellie McClung speak to 200 oh. people oh, in 1935. And they were at the Masonic Hall. Okay. And at, I had actually, I, before the Canadian Club talk, I actually went back and I did my little search for Canadian Club and uh, I had all of the titles of all of the talks they had in 1935. Oh, that's marvelous. So, but it took a whole summer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in terms of... But before computers, you, you'd you have had to have done that by, by hand and, and scribble it out on a... It, you couldn't do it. I mean, you know, it would be too much time it would, to, to do the ex to the extent that it got done. Did you? Is sports part of social history in your estimation? Yes, I have a chapter on sports. Because it's part of community. It's part of how community is built. It's part of what communities do. It's part of community pride. It's part of community identity. Do you have that all broken down with everything else, the sports part of it too? It's a separate chapter. And it also comes up in the uh, community celebration because the sports were a really big part of the old home week celebrations, which I yes, also talked about. Yes, they were, they were. They, they played lacrosse. Yes. They had the old timers come in to play lacrosse. They had baseball games. They yeah. had, you know, all kinds of things actually. And, and also special events like, um, well, at the old home week because they're trying to bring in big names. They brought in a, a, a swimmer. Mm -hmm. And that was when long-distance swimming was starting to get... It was at the same time period that they were doing things like swimming in Lake Ontario at the, um, you know, CNA. in competition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, they brought someone in called Marvin Nelson, I think was his name. The three, th things. three things. Three things. <laughs> You're still trying to get my three things. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things I was interested in was the transition in terms of family rituals. To what extent was there a transition? To what extent was it traditional? So, in other words, how do you celebrate Christmas? What is the, tr you know, what is the, what are the, the days that you celebrate and how do you celebrate them and so on and so forth. Okay. So, if with the French Canadian community, it's a little bit easier because I'm perhaps a little bit more familiar with it, but also because there's also a lot of material on what was the tradition and how, you know, what you would expect if it was still very traditional and where are they at kind of thing. Okay. And so, in that group, um, I found that they were definitely in transition in that they were beginning to move away from Christmas being simply religious to New Year's being the celebration, and that was when the gifts were given, to starting to celebrate Christmas. And there was one traditional feast or, or celebration, way of celebrating that was still current in the Astorville area called a Gengale, and I had to look that up to try to find out how to spell it. It was in the interviews and I wasn't sure exactly what it was. Okay. But it was a collection of uh, material for the poor that was done by going house to house, oh. by sleigh, uh, with pots and pans bagging at, uh, banging together, making noise at the end of the sleigh. Okay. And, um, and you basically collected extra food, extra you know, things that people might have uh, and then that was recirculated to the poor. And so this was a traditional, uh, from Quebec, uh, you know, French-Canadian uh, ritual, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was still present in the, probably in the 20s, maybe at the, into the 30s, but mostly in the 20s, that some of the older people could remember. I bet if you, I'll let you go to the other two, but I was just thinking, you're between the, the, the wars ending and you finished, basically ended in 39. I bet you if you did one from 45 to 
65, you'd find, you'd find major, major changes in, in the, just the sort of thing you were talking about. Uh, yes. Do you think? I think what, what my impression was, I originally thought I would do through until after the war. So I was, you know, the interviews included the war period and after. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it didn't work out partly because I had enough material for the earlier period and also because the interviews, uh, the people interviewed all went different directions during the war. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to talk about this area from that. Uh, but the, um, the thing that obviously changed things, at least in the rural countryside, was uh, electrification and uh, busing for schools. And so when you start having slightly more regional schools and you have, if you have busing for schools, you also have to maintain the roads. And so the automobile and electricity basically started the transformation of the countryside, and that's not until the 50s. You happy with this book? Yes. We've done one. I, did you give you two, two, two other quick ones? From um, well, I think my conclusion about community is, is kind of interesting. I think at the Canadian Club there were some people that maybe weren't quite sure about that. But what I found is that the communities in North Bay got along. Uh, and I define community as the group that has boundaries where essentially using the, like where you use the intermarriage test. You know, do you marry in between these communities or don't you? Okay. So in North Bay in the 30s, there were still very distinct religious ethnic groups. So the, even if you were Catholic, you, you, even in the Catholics, there were three groups. Right. There was the Italians, the French, and the English, mm-hmm. right? And within the Protestants, <coughs> the, the denominational divisions were not as strong but they still had communities. The Baptist church had its own community, the Anglican has it, you know, and so on. And there were very few things that brought people together across those boundaries. Uh, But people didn't have overt conflicts, and I think it was because so much of life was still based in the community. So if you were going to do something social, it was mostly gonna be a church function or a, Orange Order function mm-hmm. or a Masonic Lodge function or something. Okay. And because those groups, the people who joined those groups, tended to be similar, you know, you don't have conflicts within the group. Mm-hmm. And then between the groups, you don't tend to interact too much. So you keep social harmony essentially by not interacting. And the English, of course, dominated uh, civic government. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. nobody was challenging. And they didn't challenge that at that point. Like neither the Italians or the French Canadians would have challenged that. And the French Canadians still don't challenge the political part of it here. Not so much. I, I, well, I, yeah, I don't want to make conclusions about today, but to me it seems like those three groups are still very much present as mm-hmm. individual communities rather mm-hmm. than there's not a lot that overarches. You like doing the interviews, talking with the Yes, it was fascinating. Memories? And you've got this on a disc too, the, some of these memories. That was what I ended up doing with them. I did not do the transcripts. Maybe that was a mistake, maybe not, I'm not sure. It means that if I want to quote an interview now, I still have to go back and do the transcript, which is time consuming. On the other hand, I have these lovely DVDs and I can go and listen to the right section. Another project coming up? Something similar? Tourism. Ah, from when to when? Um, To our period. More or less 1870 to 1955, from Mattawa to Georgian Bay. This edition of our Heritage Diary, Voices from the Past, with retired Dr. Francoise Noel, was originally recorded in 2014 for the Kojiko Cable TV production, Life Is, and is rebroadcast in this format through the courtesy of Kojiko, your TV. Thank you for spending some time with us and listening to our stories. These productions are put together by the North Bay Municipal Heritage Committee, not only to retell old tales, 
but hopefully to kindle interest in area history. Local lore is important to any community. We shouldn't let it go unremarked and unremembered. Views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Corporation of the City of North Bay or its employees. Join us next time when we flip another page of the diary of our shared past. You can reach us at peter.corello at cityofnorthbay.ca. Production, Casey Monkelbahn and Peter Corello. Pete Handley speaking.